0: from the newsroom of The
1: Washington Post.
0: Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post.
2: Hi Jeff, Ms. Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there, how are you? Um... It's Lisa Bonus, calling from The Post. This
1: is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 21st. Today, what the new stimulus plan means for you. Stealing to survive. And a dispatch from the country's oldest Chinatown.
2: On Sunday night, we learned that congressional leaders had finally brokered a deal on a roughly $900 billion stimulus package, which would be an enormous deal under any circumstances, but was especially exciting given how long it took them to reach an agreement. Yesterday, Senators Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer went to the Senate floor and said that an agreement had been reached, that they were going to be moving towards a vote as soon as possible, and that that was going to start the process of getting aid to millions of Americans that have really been waiting quite a long time for it.
3: We've agreed to a package of nearly $900 billion. It is packed with targeted policies that help struggling Americans who've already waited entirely too long.
2: My name is Rachel Siegel, and I'm an economics reporter at The Washington Post.
1: In some ways, it feels like this conversation that we're having right now has been happening over and over and over again over the last few months. It seems like Congress is close to a deal, and then for some reason it gets disrupted or they have to go back to the table and then it doesn't actually happen. I mean, this has literally been the process for months. So are we expecting that this is going to actually pass imminently?
2: That is exactly right. I mean, I can even tell you that on our morning huddles with uh, my fellow econ reporters, there have been many weeks and months where it's looked like things were really moving in a direction only for negotiations to derail. But we really do seem to be at this final juncture. It's looking like at some point today, maybe later tonight, this being Monday, that we'll be able to get a vote through the House, eventually through the Senate. It's about 1040 right now, and we still have not seen text of the actual bill. We have a pretty firm sense of the main summary items based on different releases that have gone out from Democrats and Republicans. But as far as the more minute details, we're really hoping to get our hands on that in the next couple of hours. And what is actually in the bill in terms of what you've at least heard? So in terms of what's in, we're looking at categories around stimulus checks, jobless benefits, Aid for businesses, along with schools and childcare. There is money set aside for transportation and vaccine distribution.
3: So this agreement will provide huge sums for the logistics that will get these life-saving shots to our citizens as fast as possible
2: and then many other smaller categories that we're certainly hoping for more details on, but those are some of the big categories that certainly had the most attention. It's looking like the checks will be $600 per person. That includes adults and children.
3: Our agreement will provide another round of direct impact payments to help households make ends meet and continue our economic recovery.
4: I would like them been bigger, but they are uh, significant and they will be going out soon.
2: So that would mean that a family of four could get up to $2,400 up to a certain income threshold. The size of the payment itself decreases for people who earn more than $75,000 in the 2019 tax year. And then the payment disappears altogether for people who earned more than $99,000. You might remember that this is a smaller check than what went out through the CARES Act earlier in the spring when people received $1,200. But frankly, the existence of the checks themselves in this package had been negotiated for some time. And so the fact that they arrived at $600 itself was quite a compromise. We've also
1: been talking a lot about the fact that this moratorium on evictions was supposed to expire at the end of this year. How does this bill potentially change that for people who are looking at maybe being evicted from their homes?
2: So the bill includes $25 billion in emergency assistance to renters. We're still waiting for some details about how that money will be distributed. But as you mentioned, there was going to be a deadline for the end of this year where the moratorium on evictions was going to expire. That deadline has now been extended a month to January 31st. And there's the belief, especially among some Democrats, that by the time the Biden administration comes to office, that that deadline could then be extended even further.
3: The agreement on this package could be summed up by the expression, better late than never. What is missing from this bill?
2: Two big points of contention between Republicans and Democrats were disagreements over aid to state and local governments, and then liability protections. So to explain each of those a little bit more, Hmm. Democrats for months had been looking ahead, especially to the fall and winter when it was expected that the virus itself was going to really escalate and that caseloads were going to escalate in saying that there was going to be this big hit to state and local governments and that governments were going to be facing budget shortfalls and hard choices around budget cuts, public sector layoffs, cuts to spending programs. And so that was a big push. Democrats had initially wanted a trillion dollars in aid to state and local governments. That was pretty soundly rejected by Republicans who on their end were forwarding what have become known as liability protections, which essentially would help ensure that companies could not be sued by workers over virus outbreaks. Democrats were against that, saying that it imperiled the rights of workers. And ultimately, neither of those two categories made it in the final bill.
1: What role has the White House been taking during these negotiations?
2: At times, the White House has really gone in different directions around these stimulus negotiations. At one point, there was a $1.8 trillion offer on the table, but... Senate Republicans really were not serious about passing that bill. At other times, it seemed that negotiations were abruptly cut off. Sometimes these are things that we're learning from President Trump's Twitter account. At another time, Trump was apparently pushing for $2,000 stimulus checks, which is much larger than what went into this bill. And frankly, it seemed in the past couple of days, or at least over the weekend, that he was sort of missing from these negotiations, that it was really left to congressional leaders on Capitol Hill to pull this agreement together.
3: Nancy Pelosi, we are ready to sign and pass stimulus, but she's got to-
2: So when you look at the totality of
1: what is in this bill and what is not in this bill, how much of an actual effect could it have on the state of the American economy and the lives of people who have been struggling for many months now?
2: It's a complicated answer. And to be honest, on the one end, it's enormous that this bill finally came together The chair of the Federal Reserve and many people in Congress have been saying for months that more help was going to be needed in order to make the recovery as stable as possible. At the same time, there are a lot of signs that the recovery has stalled, that there was a lot of momentum earlier in the spring and summer as the economy began to open back up. But now we're facing this enormous wintertime surge in the pandemic. The economy was facing many cliffs at the end of the year for when some of the benefits from the CARES Act were set to expire. And if you're someone for whom groceries have become more expensive, maybe your job in the tourism or hospitality sector hasn't yet come back. Months to wait is a really long time. And there are economists who are actually saying that we might even need more aid beyond this package. For example, the unemployment benefits that now kick in through this new package for up to $300 a week. Those will run at least through the middle of March, and there are a lot of people for whom their job won't have come back by then, the pandemic won't be under control by then, and we might be at this place again.
1: And then what about PPP, the the kinds of loans that we saw earlier in the pandemic that were helping a lot of businesses, restaurants? Is there going to be more funding for
2: that program?
3: For workers at the hardest-hit small businesses, there will be a targeted second draw of the Paycheck Protection Program.
2: So this bill would include more than $284 billion for first and second forgivable PPP loans. Uh, It also extends eligibility for nonprofit organizations and news outlets and makes some tweaks to the previous version of the program. The Republican summary circulated last night also ensures that churches and faith-based organizations are eligible for PPP loans and so as far as the push to get money out the door to small businesses, there's quite a large chunk in this bill that would be directed for that purpose.
1: So if Congress does, in fact, approve this bill sometime in the next couple of days, how quickly will people at least see something showing up in their bank account or have any sort of tangible effect from this?
2: That is something that we are definitely waiting for more details on, too. There have been Pledges to get stimulus checks in particular out as quickly as possible at this juncture were a week before Christmas, and so that money could certainly make an enormous difference for millions of families. It's something that we're going to be certainly watching to see how quickly this money can get out the door.
3: Make no mistake about it, this agreement is far from perfect, but it will deliver emergency relief to a nation in the throes of a genuine emergency.
1: Rachel Siegel covers the economy for The Post. Rachel's story has a lot more details on this stimulus bill. Who qualifies for what and how it could affect you and your family. We'll post a link in our show notes and at postreports.com.
5: I'm going to start
6: recording on Zoom. All right, and I'm recording here too. All right. So,
1: For this next story, I'm handing things over to senior producer Rena Flores, who interviewed our colleague Aba Batarai.
5: Okay. First, tell me, who are you and what do you
6: do? I'm Abba Batarai, and I'm the national retail reporter here at The Washington Post.
7: So I wanted to start off with talking about Gene. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. And even when money's tight, I, you know, you could take, you could go to the Dollar Tree and buy 20 toys for 20 bucks and put them on the tree and your child is going to be over the moon. So I So Jean is a
6: single mother who was living in Maryland at the beginning of the pandemic. She was finishing up college. She had a she had a pretty good job. She was a receptionist.
7: Like, you know, a lot of jobs were closing down. My work did not.
6: And um, her son was in daycare, like things were going well for her. And then when the pandemic hit, her son's daycare closed. And that really set off a series of events that left her in this very desperate state.
7: It was really one of those situations where we were really on our own um, and not having daycare. But I had to quit my job because my son didn't have anywhere to go. She didn't have
6: childcare anymore, so she had to quit her job, which meant that she didn't qualify for unemployment benefits. And it was just really hard for her to pick the pieces back up. It, it seems like all the time, every day,
7: I was saying, oh my God, I have no money.
6: And then she said the priority became paying rent and paying her car payment. So food really became the one thing that she had to figure out how to get from different ways. And so she began shoplifting just basic food, like you know, pasta that could feed her and her son for
7: a few days at a time. I would even, like, as I'm walking down the house, I already feel like all eyes were on me, but I would look up at cameras, and when I would actually put the food in the bottom of the stroller, I would go to, like, where I felt like it was a blind spot.
6: So she said, when she walked into the store, which was typically a Walmart, she would have her son in his stroller, and she would just kind of casually you know put in a case of noodles or a bag of potatoes,
7: hamburger helper stuff like that that could be like that could last me a minute. you know, we can eat that two days, you know, maybe even three, to be honest, because it was just him and I,
6: whatever it was, a few items at a time, slip them underneath his stroller in the basket." And then pick up a bag of M&Ms or something small, go through the self-checkout, and then just try to walk out the front door without getting caught. And it was, it was a pretty quick process, but she was also terrified the entire time.
7: And I hate it that I had to do it. I found myself, like before even going in, kind of just wandering around, seeing if I could find like a $5 bill or something on the ground.
6: It was a really difficult thing for her to do, and she would usually drive to different stores because she was so worried about getting caught and what would happen to her son if if she got caught. We decided to use Jean's middle name in the story because she was worried about getting in trouble. But at the same time, she said her child is growing. He was always hungry, and it broke her heart to not be able to give him food.
7: It sucks because, you know, you have this baby sitting in their, you know, car their stroller, and they have no idea that their parent is stealing. (laughs) And so it it is really, it's a really bad feeling. It feels like, I can't even really explain it. It just sucks. It just sucks being in that place because I don't want to steal, you know. It's not something that I want to do. It was a last resort. And like I've mentioned, you know, um, diapers, I had to have them.
5: So in your reporting, you found out that Jean, you know, wasn't alone in, in this. This wasn't a sort of isolated incident in the pandemic.
6: Yeah. You know, this is a really desperate time for so many people and for the millions of Americans who lost their job very early on in the pandemic. This is we're going into month 10 without income, without much federal aid without any hope that they're going to be back at work soon. And so it's become an increasingly desperate period. Food banks report that, you know, demand has doubled or tripled over the pandemic. One in six families with children report not having had enough to eat in the last seven days as of mid-November. And over the course of the year, an estimated 54 million Americans are likely to struggle with hunger, which is a 45% increase from last year. So it's a huge increase that food pantries and charities are really struggling to keep Keep up with. And at the same time, it's so much harder for them to raise money or get donations that they need.
7: You know, there were food banks and like pantries, but they got to a point where they were not like everything was gone. I would join Facebook groups um, and post about pantries, and people would always you know, respond. And they'll be like, oh, they sold out within minutes. The line was all the way out the parking lot. And before they even got to the back of the line, they were, it was not sold out, but everything was gone.
6: People are just desperate to eat. And so it's a very dire situation.
5: Who are the people you've talked to who have documented this happening?
6: So we had to come at this story from a number of ways because the sort of straightforward data isn't there yet. And it's very spotty because a lot of the store owners that we talk to are not reporting this to the police. They're just quietly sort of, you know, handling this on their own. They're asking people to not come back if they catch them shoplifting, but they're not calling the cops. There are a lot of holes here in the data, but we talked to more than a dozen retailers, small business owners, retail workers, and then also security companies who are seeing an uptick in need for their service. We also talked to a number of police departments across the country, including one in Philadelphia, where they said that shoplifting had spiked 60% at the very beginning of the pandemic and had continued to be at elevated levels. And those are only the cases that are being reported. So, you know, it's a much bigger problem than what the numbers actually show. At the same time, there's a lot of data showing that shoplifting picks up anytime there's a major crisis after 9-11 and the Great Recession. And security experts tell us that they think the trend is even more pronounced this time around.
5: And I also wanted to go back to what you mentioned about talking with supermarket owners and managers, Um, you talked to one in D.C., could you just talk through what what they told you and how they were handling this kind of shoplifting?
6: Um, so I talked to a small business owner, Jew Park, at Capital Supermarket in Northwest Washington. And he said since the beginning of the pandemic, they're seeing at least one person a day slip something under their shirt or into their, you know, under their wheelchair, into a jacket. Um, and so it's really become a real focus for him. He's a small business owner. He's struggling. And now he says he's losing a considerable amount of money as shoplifting has doubled during the pandemic. So he's, he himself is in the back watching the security cameras a lot more. He is requiring that people leave bags at the front desk and he's moved sort of high, high theft items around to different parts of the store so that he can keep a closer eye on them. But at the same time, he's saying that more and more he's hearing people say, I'm sorry, I was just hungry. I didn't know what else to do. And that makes it really difficult. What do you do in that case?
5: I think it's also really worth noting that I think some of the folks that you talked to who have had to resort to this, that they've said that they try to stay away from local grocery stores. Can you just talk through what they meant when they said that?
6: Everybody that I talked to really struggled with this on so many levels. You know, there was obviously the immediate need of hunger and things like tampons or soap, you know, personal care items that they needed. But at the same time, they felt a certain level of guilt and they they sort of spent a lot of time figuring out where they stood. And almost actually all of them that I talked to said that they only go to major billion dollar businesses because they feel a little bit better about taking from those corporations than they do a small business.
5: So what are the factors on top of the pandemic that are kind of contributing to, you know, people not being able to to pay for food and feeling like they needed to resort to this?
6: This has really been one crisis on top of another for some of the country's most vulnerable populations. The people who lost their job early on and continue to lose their jobs are typically low-wage workers who work in retail or the service industry who don't have a large safety net. Many of them, you know, didn't have sick leave or paid time off that they could cash in on. So they were out of a job and they were immediately struggling. Um, at the same time, federal aid has run out. They're not receiving unemployment benefits anymore, perhaps. You know, their $1,200 stimulus check is long gone, probably spent on rent and other necessities. And they're just continuing to struggle. You know, as, as the head of the Salvation Army recently described it to me, it's just a tsunami of need. It's absolutely relentless.
5: And how is Jean doing? Have you heard from her since since publishing the story? Jean is
6: actually in many ways a success story. She found a job over the summer that pays sixteen dollars an hour. She has health insurance now. She's actually donating to the local food pantry. Um and so things are things are picking up for her. She has child care again for her son.
7: I'm just grateful for the you know for the fact that it, that even though I may be a little bit uncomfortable at times it's happening and I have food in my fridge and I'm not in a place where I have to steal food. Like I said, it might be tight, but it's happening. And that's all I need. You know, that's all I need is for it to happen so that I don't have to be in that position again. But she she is still
6: terrified that, you know, she's one job loss away again from just total poverty. And so that's something that really scares her.
1: Abba Batarai is the national retail reporter for The Post. Rena Flores is the senior producer of Post Reports.
0: Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.
1: And now, one more thing.
4: You should come to Chinatown. Precautions have been taken by our city. Uh, We know that there is a concern about tourism traveling all throughout the world, uh, but we think it's very safe to be in Chinatown and hope that others will come.
1: Back in February, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi took a tour of San Francisco's Chinatown. It is, of course, part of her congressional district. And this was early on in the pandemic, when there was a lot of irrational fear of businesses owned by Chinese Americans. So Pelosi wanted to show her support.
4: San Francisco's Chinatown is the oldest in the country. It has been the shining beacon for immigrants and the American dream.
1: The post Jada Chin is based in San Francisco, and she's been reporting on how Chinatown there has been struggling for almost a year now.
4: Can you state your full name? Uh, my name is Kevin Chan. So I spoke to Kevin Chan who is the co-owner of the Golden Gate Fortune Cookie Factory.
2: Mm-hmm. Mo- most of people come to San Francisco. They come to China down to see us.
5: Yeah, right.
2: So
4: you guys are the main attraction. Main so. attraction. So a lot of tourists come here. Um, With the pandemic, tourism is falling. According to San Francisco Travel Association, tourism to the city has been slashed in half and tourist spending has plunged by nearly 70% this year.
1: We did everything to help to, to create
2: more tourism, but the tourism is not coming.
4: Sure. Did it, you
2: guys close? Yeah, we did close for a couple of months.
4: Kevin Chan and his mother, who is also a fellow owner, Nancy Tom Chan, are celebrating their 58th anniversary. With the pandemic, this is hard on them because it's a huge economic challenge and they're not making as many fortune cookies.
3: It's sad, it's very sad, but we've got to face it. Okay. This is the the pandemic everybody facing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure other people are worse than us. Yeah. So we're lucky we're yeah. still here.
4: Okay, I will just record it on my phone. Okay. Okay. I spoke to Malcolm Young. He is the executive director of the Chinatown Community Development Center. He talked a bit about how Chinatown experienced racism,
7: even before shelter in place, even, you know, before the first case of COVID arrived in the United States, you know, um, it was being characterized by a certain president as being the Chinese flu, the Kung flu, that kind of thing. And we were we were actually, you know, as early as January of 2020, we were already starting to see the impact of that because the level of visitation in Chinatown plummeted.
4: There was a one third drop in attendance for the Lunar New Year Parade.
7: That's economically devastating, you know, because our businesses generate roughly 30% of their revenue from the two-week Chinese New Year's period. Okay,
4: if you could just state your full name. Orlando Kwan, O R L K. Orlando Kwan, the owner of Eastern bakery is staying hopeful um, by staying connected with all of his customers that come by to buy his mooncakes and pastries. It's the oldest bakery in China. Oldest bakery, yeah. Since 1924, we yeah. have the best mooncake. He has been outside waiting for any customers to come by and just support his business. This is all the in Chinatown. Sure. We are sure. well known. Otherwise, they will miss us a lot. Of course, of course. Of course, but uh, we need a lot of customers, you know, to survive. From thing, all you know. over, yeah. Yeah. San Francisco's Chinatown has faced so much. To kind of have that sense of hope is amazing because, you know, his business has been around forever.
1: Jada Chin is a social media coordinator for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We want to announce that Post Reports has been awarded two Salute to Excellence Awards from the National Association of Black Journalists. We are very thrilled. Those stories are more relevant than ever, about Vice president-elect Kamala Harris's time at Howard and about high mortality rates among black mothers. If you haven't heard them, go back and listen. We'll put a link in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.